Uh, we're talking very briefly this afternoon about a very important doctrine, foundational to Christian life and ministry, and that is the doctrine of salvation. Now, because time is short, we're simply surveying this by a very brief uh, topical overview. I trust you understand that. And you need to spend uh, the rest of your life going deeper and deeper into these truths that relate to the gospel. Hear me. It's not necessarily some new or exciting truth that we need to know. It's going deeper in our understanding intellectually and emotionally into solid biblical truth that is foundational for life and ministry. Now, there's many things we could say about the doctrine of salvation. We're just indicating three of these. We could mention many more. Uh, but we're talking, number one, as to why salvation is necessary, and it's because of the sinful condition of man. Now we want to come right to the heart of gospel reality, uh, number two, and answer this question, how was our salvation accomplished? And we just simply want to put here on the board that particular truth, the accomplishment of salvation the accomplishment of salvation. We talked about its necessity. Why is salvation necessary? Now we're talking about how was salvation accomplished? Now there's many words that we could use to describe <clears throat> the work of Christ and the truth of salvation. We'll mention some of these. But if there's one word that is the overarching expression of <clears throat> how our salvation is accomplished, we could put it right here in parentheses and call it Christ's perfect obedience. Christ's perfect obedience. If there's one large word under which every aspect of the work of Christ could fit, we could say Christ's work is a work of obedience. Let's look at several verses that testify to that reality. You'll call them to mind yourself. Of course, Philippians and chapter 2, is it not? Philippians and chapter 2. Paul is describing uh, that glorious testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's exhorting us to humility and lowliness of mind and heart. And he says, chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourself, which also in Christ Jesus. And you know, brethren, in one sense of the word, uh, symbolically, or, we ought to take the shoes off our feet. Because mm -hmm. we're headed toward holy ground. Who, although he existed, verse 6, in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Our Lord's work in life and death, and its broadest description, was a work of 
obedience. Write this verse down, Hebrews in chapter 5. You are familiar with that verse as well. Hebrews chapter 5. He is talking about the superiority of the person and work of Christ to all of the Old Testament system, whether it's Moses, whether it's the Levitical priesthood, whether it's the temporary ceremonial sacrifices. And he says to this, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the Levitical priesthood, but according to the order of Melchizedek, who was that mysterious real person that appeared on the stages of redemptive history, without beginning and without end. That doesn't mean he was a supernatural being. I believe it means that uh, the scripture doesn't tell us where he came from and where he ended, but he was a king and he was a priest. In the days of his flesh, verse seven, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death and he heard because of his piety. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obeyed him the source of his eternal salvation. At every point in our Lord's life, he was obedient. But his obedience was not finished until he went to the cross. You understand what we're saying? At every point in his life, his, 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 his behavior was obedience. But he learned this in his human nature, submitting to his father, saying, I always do those things pleasing to my heavenly father. And as a result of his obedience all through his life, he was made perfect. That doesn't mean he wasn't already perfect. He was sinless. It does mean that his obedience was finished and fulfilled. I turn to the book of Romans. We're just simply talking about this broad description of the work of Christ being a work of obedience. And when we turn to the book of Romans, there, the whole book is absolutely crucial, but there are several passages that give both a broad picture of the work of Christ and a specific picture of the work of Christ. And in the book of he Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 21 down to 26, we have a very specific description of the work of Christ. But as you turn to chapter 5, you have backing up and looking at a broader picture of the work of Christ. And of course, in Romans chapter 5, in the very familiar and crucial uh, verses 12 to 21, we have one of the most significant and important passages in all of the Word of God. Because here, uh, the Apostle Paul is telling us about the history of humanity. And the history of humanity is the story of two men. The history of humanity is the story of two men. And the Apostle Paul is contrasting and comparing two men in regards to certain aspects of their life and their work. Now hear me carefully. Ephesians, excuse me, Romans chapter 5, the 12 through 21 is an expanded and detailed explanation 
of the work of Christ in comparison to the work of Adam. Now, we do not have time to look at and unpack, as they say, this verse in detail, because Paul takes a major excursion in chapter 5, about verse 13, all the way down uh, to verse 17, in which he's trying to prove a point. That is, that all people, even though they haven't sinned against commandment, are nonetheless guilty. They are not guilty because they have a sinful nature. They are guilty because they are connected to their first father. You understand what we're saying? This is very important to understand. Let me see your pen for a minute, brother. This is something very serious, and I've drawn this little diagram many places at many times, and perhaps you've seen it before. This is a simple, visible, visual explanation of Romans chapter 5 as to its main point. I think I've lacked a point here, brother. Let's put this right here. Now, what's the key to unlock this passage? We mentioned it yesterday. The key to unlock this passage, this most crucial passage that you must understand because it's the story of history. History is the story of these two men. These are the two greatest men that ever lived, great by way of the impact they had on humanity. You understand what we're saying? And there's a key to unlock this passage. And if you don't have that key, you will be lost in these passages. And that key involves two words, imputation and representation. Imputation and representation. Let's write it somewhere, brother. Imputation and representation. This is the key that unlocks this passage. What do we mean? Let's simplify this passage in this very visible chart uh, that some of you have seen before. Chapter 5 and verse 12, Thus as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. All sinned in Adam by representation. He was what theologians call the federal head. He was the head of all humanity. And all humanity is united to Adam in two ways. Listen carefully. All humanity is united to Adam in two ways. Number one, legally by representation. And physically by ordinary generation. We have a legal and a physical connection to Adam. What does this verse tell us? Look down at verse 18 and 19 because there we have a summation of what Paul is saying. And again, we don't have time to expound the entirety of the passage. But notice verse 17, For by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, he picks up again the point he was making in verse 12. And verse 18 and 19 summarize what Paul is trying to say here in the comparison of these two men. So then, now hear me, brethren, this is not a fairy tale. This really 
actually happened. You and I have a union with Adam. All humanity has a union with Adam. So then it's through one transgression that resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Notice verse 19, the obedience of the one. That is descriptive generally of the work of Christ. We got two men, two men. Who's the first man? Who's the other man? All right, listen carefully. These two men represent two groups. Adam represents all humanity that are united to him in two ways, legally and physically. Legally by representation, physically by ordinary generation or physical birth. Christ represents all believers that are united to him in two ways, legally by representation and spiritually by the new birth, not physical birth, the new birth. All humanity is in Adam. What does it mean to be in Adam? It means to be united to Adam. All humanity is united to Adam in two ways. Legally, as he is our formal representative, the federal head of all humanity, and physically, by the new birth, all of our sinful nature comes down through ordinary generation, even to us today. Hear me carefully. Christ represents these believers, both legally and spiritually. Or you got two men representing two groups. Now they, they did then perform two works, two works. Notice verse 19. What is the work that Adam did in one word? Disobedience. Disobedience. What is the word, verse 19, that Christ, uh, excuse me, verse 19, yes, in one word that Christ did? Obedience. Obedience. Or this resulted in two, two, uh, two results. Notice verse 18. In one word, what is the result of Adam's disobedience to all men? Condemnation. Condemnation. Look at verse 18 at the end. What is the result of Christ's work to all he represented? One word. Justification. Now listen carefully. In verse 18, the first all men and the second all men 
are not entirely equal. You understand what we're saying? All humanity is in Christ. All believers, excuse me, all humanity is in Adam. All believers are in Christ. These two men represented two groups and they did two results, excuse me, two works. And it resulted in two results and that brought about two ends, two final ends. Notice verse 21. What is the final end of all men in Adam apart from Christ in one word? Verse 21. Death. Death. Eternally. And what is the result of the final end of all those in Christ? Life, eternal life. Now listen carefully. Look quickly at the book of Corinthians. We're talking broadly speaking about the work of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21. Since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die. What does it mean to be in Adam? It means to be united to Adam. All humanity is united to Adam in two ways, legally and physically. Look at the rest of the verse. So also in Christ all will be made alive. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be united to Christ. We're united to Christ in two ways, legally by representation and spiritually by the new birth, not by physical birth, but by the new birth. You understand what we're saying? Not everyone is in Christ. Everyone is in Adam. Now, this is a very simple explanation of an expanded, profound passage, and we've left out the major section in Romans chapter 5, verses 13 to 17, that address another issue. What about those that have never heard or sinned in the likeness of Adam's sin, which was a deliberate rebellion against a specific commandment? Uh, Paul is saying, even those people that have not sinned against a specific commandment are condemned. They are not condemned primarily by their own sinful acts. They're not condemned, first of all, by their own sinful nature. They are condemned by their connection to the disobedience of their federal head. What I'm saying is the first source of humanity's condemnation is outside of them on account of what their federal representative accomplished. And the legal guilt of Adam's transgression was imputed to all of those he represented. Consequently, Paul is saying that the basis of our justification is nothing to do with anything within ourselves. It was accomplished outside of us by the alien righteousness of our spiritual head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we believe in Christ, the righteousness he accomplished in his life 
will be imputed to us because he is our representative. Two men, Adam and Christ, represent two groups, all humanity and believers. They are united to Adam legally and physically. Believers are united to Christ legally and spiritually. These two men did two works. Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed. It resulted in two results, condemnation to all that are in Adam, justification to all that are in Christ. And there's two final destinations, eternal death and eternal life. Now listen carefully. If you don't have this key, you can't understand man's greatest need and you can't understand the work of Christ. The condemnation of all humanity is not first of all because of his sinful acts or his sinful nature. The condemnation of all humanity is on account of the disobedience of another outside of them. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, hear me carefully. If you abandon the condemnation of all humanity on account of the disobedience of one outside of them. Paul said, by way of comparison, you have to give this up. Your justification is not on account of your righteous acts, not on account of your renewed nature. It's on account of the righteousness that was accomplished outside of you, separate from you, alien from you, <coughs> not within you. You understand what we're saying? If you don't have that key, you can't unlock this passage. I trust you know and understand these things. But do we understand it deeply in our hearts? Listen, Adam actually lived. Now, most people don't believe that today. <coughs> Jesus believed it, and Paul believed it. And if they believed it, that's good enough for me. All of history is a story of two men. And they represented two groups of people. They accomplished two works. They brought two results and two final destinations. In a very simplified manner, that is what Paul is saying. He's saying the source of our justification is outside of us in the obedience of another. And the initial source of our condemnation is outside of us in the disobedience of another. That's his argument. You understand what Paul is saying. Now this passage is a lot more complicated than this. From verses 13 down to verse 17. Well, this is, in a nutshell, in a simplified form, I believe, what Paul is trying to say here. <coughs> Any questions? We're talking about the work of Christ generally. It's a work of <coughs> obedience. Now, he didn't have to obey for himself. The righteousness he accomplished was not for him. He was already righteous. <coughs> He was accomplishing a righteousness and obedience to the law in his life on behalf of those he represented. And if they believe in him, he will impute or legally transfer to their record. Imputation and justification is no change in a man's nature. 
It is something that happens outside of him in the courtroom of God regarding his legal record. Justification does not change a man's nature. It changes his legal position, his legal record, and his legal standing in the sight and in the courtroom of God. You understand what we're saying? It is by the imputation of the righteousness of another. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. David said, Psalm 32, Blessed are those to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Romans chapter 4, he believed God and it was imputed or credited to him to righteousness. It's not a change in man's person or his nature. It's a change in his legal record in the sight of God. Paul told Philemon this about the runaway slave Onesipus. What did he say in the book of Philemon? And if he owes you anything, what? Charge it to my account. That is a picture of imputation. And our Savior said to the Father, if they owe you anything which they do, perfect obedience, and they cannot fulfill it, charge it to my account. Listen carefully. We'll discuss this in a minute. Everything Jesus did in his life and his death was in relationship to the law of God. And if you do not understand Jesus' relationship to the law of God in his life and in his death, you cannot fully understand and clearly preach the gospel. Everything Jesus did was in relationship to God's law. We'll look at that in more detail in a minute. But do you understand by way of general introduction regarding the accomplishment of salvation, it is Christ's perfect obedience, which we saw in Philippians, we saw in Hebrews, and we see here in this passage, this right here. The obedience that he accomplished produced a righteousness that will be imputed to the people that he represents. The disobedience that Adam accomplished brought condemnation to the people he represents by a legal transfer. You understand what we're saying? Brothers, anything you can expand to this? That, that, uh, this is pretty simple. Any questions? Now listen carefully. This is not dry theology. This is a story of history. If you want to know why all men are condemned, you look to their first father. And you want to know why all believers are justified, you look to their federal head and their representative. Hear me carefully. Justification has nothing to do with the change in your nature or the righteous acts that you perform. It has everything to do with the righteousness outside of you accomplished by another that will be legally transferred to your record in the courtroom of God. That is the nature of justification. And hear me carefully, that is a truth that the devil doesn't like. Mm -hmm. Any questions or comments? Well, we want to take a break and then we want to get 
a little closer to the cross. Listen carefully. I know you know the old, old story. But we ought to want to hear it again. Well, let's pray. Father, what can we say? He walked this earth. And he accomplished for us that which we could not do. We glory in our Savior, his perfect obedience. And we say there is our righteousness, there is our salvation. And we glory in his life and his death, his resurrection and his exaltation. May we not uh, simply write a little thing in our notebook, but may we be deeply impressed, strangely moved, and truly grateful for the obedience of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen.